Well, he is risen. Today we celebrate the great news that the tomb was empty. And as we celebrate that news, it shows us that Jesus was who he said he was. The Son of God who came and conquered sin and death. Now as wonderful as that news is for us today, as we think about the hope we have of how we have been reconciled to God and will one day get to spend eternity with, he, with him in heaven, I wonder if you've ever thought, is that all that Easter is about? Not that I'm complaining, that's wonderful news, but does Easter have meaning beyond the reconciliation we have with God and that one day we get to be with him in heaven? What does Easter mean for us in our day? In the day in which we live where as we look at the news, we see that it's filled with messages of hate and division as people fight and argue about whose lives matter most. As we're going to see today, as we turn in our Bible to Acts chapter 10, the message of Easter is one that has great hope, not just for eternity, but it's a message of hope and healing for us in our day, as it shows we've been reconciled, not just to God, but to one another. Now, the labels may be different in our day, but the division is not new. As we look at Acts chapter 10 and verses 1 through 2, this is what we're told. Now, there was a man in Caesarea by, na- by the name of Cornelius, a centurion uh, of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now, as we read this, what we're told is there's a guy by the name of Cornelius. He's a centurion. And I want you to remember what that means because in the context, what we're looking at today was happening in the first century. This is happening in the land of Israel. This is the place where Rome was a foreign occupying power. They had taken over the area of Israel. So this guy named Cornelius is a Roman officer. We're told he's a centurion. It means he's a Uh, battalion-level commander. He's over a 100 of the soldiers in the Italian cohort. Uh, This is the regiment that is there in Caesarea, the place named after Caesar Augustus. This is the seat of political power as the occupation is taking place. So this guy is not just boots on the ground, but he's the the battalion commander. He's he's a soldier soldier. He's a battle-tested, rugged guy, and yet we're told he's also a good guy because you read that he's a family man. He's a guy who fears God. He's a guy who prays to God. He's a guy who even cares about the people in the area that he's overseeing because it says he's giving alms. He's helping the Jews in that day who were struggling. Now, as good as he is, as great as this resume is, what we're going to see as the story unfolds is it's not good enough to get him to heaven. This is a guy who, it says, fears God. He's worshiping the true God, Jehovah, Yahweh. He's done everything but become a proselyte where he's circumcised. So what all that tells us is he's a Gentile. He's, he's a foreigner. You have the Jews and you have the Gentiles. You have the races that are divided in this day. Now, God, as I said, is going to bring reconciliation as we look at this. And what we see is he needs to hear the message of God's grace. It was demonstrated when Christ came and he died on the cross. Now, to prepare Cornelius for this uh, message of hope, look at what happens in verses 3 through 8. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision, an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa. And send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. 
He is staying with a tanner named Simeon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were of his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, Joppa was located about 30 miles away uh, from where he was in Caesarea. And what that means is in that day, it's about a two-day journey to get there. They couldn't just jump in a car and, and be there in, in a short time like we can do. And so this, this group heads out. There's two Gentile servants and, and his personal uh, attendant, this, this mighty soldier himself who heads that way. And as the group is going to Joppa, we see that God is at work in that city preparing somebody else's heart by the name of Peter through a vision of his own, which we find in verses 9 through 14. It says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opening up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came and said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. You see, what we're being told here, if you know the Levitical law, it said there were certain animals that were unclean that would defile an observant Jew. So Peter says, God, I've always been an observant Jew. I follow the law. And so as, as he's hungry, he's famished, he's, he's falling into this trance, he's so hungry, it appears to show us, and yet down comes food for him to eat, this big buffet. And Peter is told, uh, get up and eat. There's pigs in a blanket, there's uh, your first bacon cheeseburger, you know, and what does Peter say? Not going to eat it, Lord. You know, this isn't the first time Peter's told God no, is it? As you read through the Bible, you see Peter uh, telling God no on a couple of other occasions. One is found in Mark chapter 8 in verses 31 through 32. There is Jesus is still walking the earth as he's here before his death and resurrection. He's, he's telling the disciples about what's going to happen. And it says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter, hearing this, it says, he took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. No, 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 Lord. See, that's not the way the plan works. I've got a better plan. That's not not how we're going to do it. There's another time Peter did the same thing. You recall the Last Supper. Again, Jesus was preparing them for what was to come, his crucifixion and all the things that were about to happen. It says that Jesus gets up and as a servant, he washes the feet of all the disciples. And John 13, 8 says, as Jesus comes to John, he says, never shall you wash my feet. I wonder how many times some of us here have said no to God. Have you ever done that? God is telling you something. He's showing you something in his word. There's something you know you should do. And we say, no, 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 God, see, I got a better plan. And, and, and what you're laying out doesn't fit the way I think it should go. And that's what's happening with Peter. You see, Peter was a man that was part of God's overall plan. You'll recall that God had already revealed to Peter what his plan was for Peter, again, while Christ was still walking the earth before his crucifixion and resurrection. Back in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus told Peter he was going to give to him the keys to the kingdom of heaven and that he would be used to open doors that no one could shut. 
And as we're walking through the book of Acts, if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Acts, you know that it's been the story of the birth of the church. It's been the story of God's unfolding plan of the message of grace coming to everyone. And it started in Acts chapter 2. We saw at the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, when Peter preached the sermon to the Jews and 3,000 came to faith in Christ. And as a sign of the birth of the church and the, the new entity, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they were sealed. And, and, and then we saw in Acts chapter 8 how God opened another door. The Jews came to faith and then the Samaritans. The Samaritans are those who are half Jewish, half Gentile. And the Jews didn't like them. They thought they were half-breeds, kind of unclean. They avoided them. But we saw again that as the gospel was preached, uh, Peter and John were called to come. And when they came and laid hands again, the sign of the Spirit fell, showing that, yeah, they are a part of the new entity called the church. And now we come to Acts chapter 10, and we have another group, the Gentiles. The Gentiles were definitely unclean to the Jews. They were separated from them. They saw them as these, you know, people that were to be avoided. And yet what we're reading about happening here is the Gentiles are about to come into the church. Another door is to be opened. Now, Peter is 30 miles away in Joppa. And God says, go get Peter because he's the guy who's going to be used to open the door. Now, you'll recall earlier in Acts chapter 8, there was another guy by the name of Philip the Evangelist. Do you remember when he preached to the Ethiopian eunuch and that, that Gentile came to faith in Christ? Well, as you read through the Bible, you see that Philip, where do you think Philip's living? He's living in Caesarea, where Cornelius is. You can read Acts uh, 21, verse 8, and it says he's been living there in Caesarea. So why didn't God just say, hey, Philip the evangelist is right around the corner. Go get him. Well, because Peter was part of God's overall plan to open the door to the Gentiles. And we're going to see it happens because around verses 44 and 46, these Gentiles come to faith and they're, they're welcomed into the church. They're baptized and then the Holy Spirit falls, showing that something new has happened. And this is, this is the part that Peter has. But Peter is this observant Jew who says, I stay away from unclean things. And it's not just the food that God was trying to get Peter to deal with. He says, you see the Gentiles as unclean. And I have to move you to the point where you understand that they are a part of the, the up-and-coming church that I'm welcoming in. And you're going to be the guy. This is why Peter doesn't get a pat on the back for saying, I won't eat the food. Because verses 15 and 16 tell us, Uh, God repeats the process. It says, again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, verse 17 says, Peter doesn't quite get it yet. He's, He's scratching his head, and he's going, it says here, he's perplexed, greatly perplexed in mind as to what this vision he had seen might mean. Now, God doesn't leave Peter in the dark for long because look at what happens in verses 19 and 20. The three Gentiles arrive from Caesarea, and the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without any misgivings, because I have sent them myself. Peter's told plainly, Listen, this is why the guys are here. And God says, I sent them so you would go with them. Now, Peter hears this from these men as well, because when he asks them, what do you want from me? They say in verse 22, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his home and hear a message from you. 
Now, once again, we're reminded of how great a guy Cornelius is. Wouldn't you like his resume? He's righteous, he's God-fearing, even as this Roman enemy occupier, it says the whole nation of Israel said, this is, this is a great guy. And yet what God says to Cornelius is, as good as you are, as great as your resume is, you're still missing it. You're still not welcome uh, into my family. You're still not going to make it into heaven based upon how good you are. And some of us sitting here this morning may feel that we're a little bit like Cornelius. Now, maybe you wouldn't say it outwardly, but you're thinking right now in your mind, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. I I try to do what's right. I'm here in church on Easter. I I give alms, you know, I give some money to God's work here and there. I'm I'm somebody overall that I'd say is pretty good. So God's going to say to me on that day, sure, come on in. You're, You're welcome. And yet what the Bible tells us is none of us can get to God based upon our resume. None of us can get there based upon how good we are. As you read through the Bible, it tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. And then he repeats that a few verses later in Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you've heard that word sin before, but what does sin really mean? Well, what it means literally is to miss the mark. It was an archery term. And so if you were to be given 100 arrows and you were to shoot 99 of the arrows and 99 hit right there in the center of bullseye, and then on your 100th arrow you were just outside, like you see one of those arrows, just outside that center bullseye, we would look at that and say, that's awesome. That's great. And it would be good shooting. But what the judge would write on your scorecard is you sinned. You missed the mark. You were not perfect. Is there anyone here who's been perfect 100% of the time? Never lied, never stolen, never cheated, never bit the ears off somebody's Easter chocolate bunny this morning? I mean, is there anybody here who is 100% perfect? No. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. Remember, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's glory is perfection. And because of that, we have a problem. We have a problem because Romans 6.23 goes on to say the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn. So if you're here today and you're saying, I'm trying to earn my way to God by being good enough, what God says is the only thing you earn through your life is separation from me. And Cornelius was a guy who was told by God, you need to hear a message. And there's a man who will come and tell you what the message is. The message of how you can get to me. So we see in verse 24, Peter packs up and he heads up the road. We're told six other believers go with him. And that's going to become important uh, later in Acts chapter 11 because there, when the Jerusalem church hears that the door was open to the Gentiles and they came in, they're they're going to say, we're not sure these guys can come into the church. And these witnesses are going to be there to say, listen, we saw what happened. So as they arrive, the scripture here tells us our passage says there's a small crowd waiting. You see, Cornelius has gathered his friends. He's gathered his family. Uh, Remember, this has been four days, two days there, two days back. But he's saying, I know they're coming. And I want you all to come and hear this message of hope. And so as Peter walks through the door of this house, verses 25 through 26 tell us, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him. And he fell at his feet and he worshiped him. But Peter raised him up saying, stand up. I too am just a man. I mean, here's Cornelius, 
Cornelius says, this angelic messenger appeared to me. He told me this other guy is going to come with a message. So you have this, this great army officer who humbles himself in front of one of the Jews. That, you know, they're, they're coming in and he, he's in front of all his families. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Only God is worthy of worship. It's not right that you worship me, a mere man. And Peter says there's something else that's not right that's going on. Look at what he says in verses 28 through 29. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So I ask you, for what reason have you sent for me? Now, here again, you, you see just how ingrained the hatred among the races is. They say, look, Peter says, as a Jew, I shouldn't even be in your house. I should be coming to talk to you. We, we, the, you know, people aren't going to like this. And as you look at Acts 11.3, you see people didn't like it. Because in the church later, they hear about Peter going to the Gentiles. And it says, you ate with the uncircumcised. I mean, these are Christians saying, what are you doing, Peter? You're mixing. This isn't right. And he says, oh, no, it is right. Because God is doing something new. He's bringing reconciliation, the message of hope that we have received already. It's not just for eternity, it's for today. Now, in verses 30 through 33, Cornelius answers Peter's question. He says, well, I sent for you because I had a vision. And he says, so I I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Talk about low-hanging fruit. Okay, Peter, we're ready to receive the message. Verses 34 through 43 tell us this. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee and after the baptism, which John proclaimed. He says, look, you guys haven't been living under a rock. You've heard all the news about Christ walking around and the miracles and what happened when he was crucified and when he rose from the dead. And so Peter's expounding on the headlines. And he says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Cornelius is a centurion. He's a Roman officer. He knew all about the trial. He knew all about the crucifixion. Remember, there's another centurion standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus died who said, truly, this was the son of God. Peter's just recounting everything they know. And as he's laying this foundation, we've seen all throughout Acts how there were many witnesses. There were over 500 who had seen Jesus physically, including Paul, on the road to Damascus, this guy who had been against the Jews and he saw the resurrected Lord. And so he says here, God raised him up on the third day, granted that he might become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him and he wrote, after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that he is the one. This is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living 
and of the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that, throughout his, that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Peter covers the waterfront. And he says, here is how you're saved. It's through believing in Jesus Christ. It's not being good enough. It's believing, placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he says, he is the one who has reconciled us. He says, you yourselves know how we've been separated, Jews and Gentiles, and how we were separated from God by our sins. And then he recounts the ministry of Christ. And he says, he walked the earth. He was here. He ministered in Galilee and and Jerusalem and Judea and, and, and how he was crucified and buried. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And Peter says Jesus was the anointed one. It means the promised one. Isaiah 53 spoke of how the coming Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions. How he would die a horrible death that he didn't owe the penalty for but to save us. Do you remember what I told you Romans 6.23 says? The wages of sin is death. But that verse goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what Peter is doing here is presenting the gospel. He's saying, you're a sinner, you're separated, just as I as a Jew was a sinner and separated. And God has reconciled us to him, and he's showing me that he's reconciling us to one another. And as those who are gathered there hear this message, they believe in Jesus Christ. You can see that from verse 47, where it says they are then baptized as believers. Baptism is a picture. As we saw, if you were here two weeks ago when we we had the wonderful celebration of seeing 50 people get baptized, we talked about how when a person goes under the water, it's a picture of being buried with Christ. And just as uh, Christ came up out of the tomb in newness of life, as a believer comes up out of the water, it shows that they're, they're walking in a newness of life. The water doesn't wash away our sins. It was the blood of Jesus that did that. And this is what is happening with the Gentiles. They come to faith, they're baptized. The Holy Spirit uh, shows that they are a part of the church by falling on them as well. And as we look at what is happening, as we look at what we're reading about here, those who were listening, remember, this is the first century. This is about 37, 39 uh, AD. The temple in Jerusalem wasn't destroyed until 70 AD by the Romans. So everybody sitting there is in a city where up the road there is a temple, and they knew that you went to the temple to offer sacrifices. Let me take you on a tour of the temple, because it explains for us, it gives us a visual picture of the separation that the races had from each other as well as from God. If you look at this model of the temple, and you see where that arrow is pointing over in the top left corner of the slide, uh, that was what was called Solomon's portico. And Solomon's portico was the place where the Gentiles uh, were allowed to go and worship God. In Mark eleven fifteen through 17, you'll recall how Christ had to drive the money changers and the merchants out of that area because he said this was to be a house of prayer for all people, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile, is one who offered alms. In all likelihood, he himself had been present there in the temple. And he had been in that area. This, this was where he, as a Gentile, God-fearing uh, worshiper, could go. But the only sacrifices he could offer were those of his lips, his prayers. He wasn't allowed to bring a physical offering into the temple. Now, the Jewish establishment, they didn't really care about that area, the religious leaders of the day, because uh, they didn't worship out in that outer area. They went to this thing called the balustrade or the soreg. This was a wall that was about five feet high. 
and it separated the Gentiles from the Jews. If you were a Jewish person, man or woman, you could go beyond that wall, that wall of separation. But the Gentiles were left outside. If a Gentile went beyond the wall, uh, they could be killed. In 1871, archaeologists found this inscription uh, in some rubble that had been a part of the uh, temple. Now, you may not be able to read it, so let me translate it for you. It says, no man of another race, that means a non-Jew, is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death which follows. If you as a Gentile went beyond that wall of separation, you would be killed. And we see the truth of that if you look at Acts chapter 21, because in Acts 21 later, it records where Paul was falsely accused. The apostle Paul went back to the temple to offer some uh, thanksgiving and sacrifices. And as he went into the temple, some people falsely accused him. This is what Acts 21:28 tells us. Some Jews from Asia began crying out, Men of Israel, come, come to our aid. This, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, that is the Jews, and the law in this place. And, and besides, he has even brought Greeks, Gentiles, into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. <clears throat> what do people do about it? Look at verses 31 through 32. And while they were seeking to kill him, there's a riot. They rush in. They drag Paul. They're dragging him out of the temple to kill him. And while this is happening, it says a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions, and he ran down and he rescued Paul. Now, how did they know what was going on? Well, other than there's this report of this riot in the city, If you go to Israel, this is a a scale model that has been built there in Israel. And you can walk around and see it. And you notice the temple that I showed you is over there on to the left of that arrow. Well, where that other arrow is pointing now, that's called the Fortress of Antonia. And the Fortress of Antonia was built right alongside the Temple Mount. And this was where the Romans, the, remember we had the Italian cohort that was there in Caesarea. Here's another regiment in the, the capital of Jerusalem where there would be a hotbed of rebellion. And it says that these Roman soldiers could monitor what was happening. They couldn't enter into the temple. Remember, it wasn't until 70 AD when they destroyed the place. So they tried to keep things, you know, kind of calm by not going beyond that balustrade, that dividing wall. So they're up there in the, and they look down and they go, there's, there's a riot going on in the temple. And it says that the leader and centurions and soldiers go rushing down and they rescue Paul. And they drag him back and they bring him into this fortress and they go, what in the world is going on? Why, why are they trying to kill you? And we'll cover that when we get to Acts chapter 21. But what we see happening here is the truth of the passage that we just read. You see just how the division was among the races, where they said no Gentile can come close to God. Remember, the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies, there within the temple. And the best you could do as a God-fearing Gentile was to come as far as that far wall was. Now, if you were Jewish, you were still separated as well. Because as you went into the temple, if you were a woman, a Jewess, you could go through what was called the beautiful gate. And you would go into this first area of the, the courtyard that was called the court of women. And as a woman, that was as far as you could come. You were still separated. You had a, a physical reminder that you were separated from the presence of God. 
If you were a Jewish man who was coming with a sacrifice, you would enter in through this next gate to come into the court of the Israelites. And as a man, you could come this far and no closer. You would bring your sacrifice, you would enter in, but there was a rail within that uh, area of the court of the Israelites. And as a Jewish man, that was as far as you could come and you would bring your sacrifice for sin. And the priest was on the other side of the rail in what was called the court of the priests. And he would take your sacrifice and he would prepare it and it would be offered on the brazen altar that you see there. And this model kind of shows you a, a tight little area, but it was a massive area. There's a bronze laver, the sea, and the priests were there. This was had all the water for the ceremonial washings and to wash away all the blood and the various things that were happening. But you see, beyond this courtyard is the temple. And as you went up those steps and, and through the doors, you went into the inner area of the temple. And only a few priests were allowed to go into this area. And as they went into this area, this is what Hebrews 9, 2 through 7 tells us would happen. For there was a tabernacle prepared the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table of the sacred bread. And this is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. And above it were the cherubim of glory, that's the angels, overshadowing the mercy seat. The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the sins of all the people committed in ignorance. This is that inner area. And a few priests would come in here and they would attend to the, the, the table of showbread and the, the lampstand and the, the various things that were in there. But again, you see on the far end of this picture that, that large veil with that rendering of these cherubim that were over the Ark of the Covenant, that halismos, the mercy seat. And it says that even as a priest who was allowed to go into this innermost area, you were reminded once again of what? Your separation from God. Because of your sin, you were not allowed to come into the presence of God. And only once a year, the high priest would go behind this veil. He would bring the blood of the offering, which he would put on the the halismos, the mercy seat. It tells us in Hebrews 10, 3 through 4, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins, not a removal, but a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, the blood was like paying the minimum payment on your credit card. You never touched the principal balance. The account was there. All you were doing was keeping the account current through the interest that was owed. The way that the account was closed, the way that it was removed is in John 129, where John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus Christ coming, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We read that in Hebrews 10, 3 through 4. It says, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for that blood to remove it. But what did Christ's blood do? Hebrews 10, 5. When Jesus comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. He was given a body, a physical body. Why? Why did Christ, God incarnate, have to take on flesh and blood? It was so that he could physically go to the cross. 
so that he could physically shed his blood. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Remember, every man and woman, boy and girl who has ever lived owes a penalty of sin called death. And as Jesus died on the cross, what he was doing for us is paying our penalty. It's why as you read about his crucifixion, John 19.30, it says, as Christ was about to breathe his last, he said, it is finished. What he literally said in the Greek text is, teteleste. You see that T-E-T-E beginning, that means the verb is in the perfect form, and that tells you it is a, a completed action once and for all. The main verb in the middle is teleo, which means to pay a debt, to finish. When it says, when it, says it is finished, what Christ literally said from the cross is paid in full. I closed the account. I covered the debt. Remember, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you'll recall that on that day that Jesus was crucified, there were two other men who died with him, two thieves, two criminals, who were dying because of their crimes. One of those men said to Jesus as he hung on the cross, Remember me this day, Lord, when you enter into paradise. He was saying, I believe you're who you said you are, the Son of God. I'm placing my faith in you. And Jesus said to him, This day you will be with me in paradise. That man never did one good thing. He didn't get baptized. He, he died on the cross. He was buried and he went to heaven because of his faith in Christ. Those two men's bodies went in the grave and they stayed there. Only Jesus came out of the tomb. And he did that to show he was indeed who he said he was, the son of God who conquered sin and death. He has paid our penalty in full. The account has been closed. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 tells us, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of, of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And you'll recall as Jesus died on the cross, as he said, it is finished. Do you remember what happened at that moment? The Bible tells us in the Gospel of Mark in 1537 through 39, and as Jesus uttered a loud cry, he breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way in which he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that veil in the temple was about four inches thick. It was so tightly woven, he said you could tie two horses to either end and they couldn't tear that veil. And yet it says the veil was torn from heaven to earth from top to bottom at that moment. Why? Because God wanted everybody to see that the separation was gone that he had closed the account, he had removed it through the blood of his son that washed away our sins. And God said, there is no longer a separation for you or me or anyone who places her faith and trust in Christ because God has reconciled us to himself. Not only has he reconciled us to himself, he's reconciled us to one another. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. You can flip over there in your uh, iPhone as well. Ephesians 2. In verses 11 through 18, it summarizes what we've been talking about today, and it tells us this in Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that you, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision 
which is performed in the flesh by human hands. He's saying, you who are Gentiles, which is about most of us here, there are a couple of completed Messianic Jews among us. He says, as Gentiles, you were separated, you were called on circumcision by those who had the sign of the covenant. And he says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Did you hear how desperate our situation was? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, not just outside the balustrade, but who were far off from God because of our sins, it says you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one, Jew and Gentile. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. That one body is called the church. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. He's saying, as a Jew, you were nearer than the Gentiles, but you were still separated. And he says, for through him, we both have our access and one spirit to the Father. Jesus Christ is the bridge that was laid down across that chasm of sin that separated us from God and from one another. And the message of Easter is one of reconciliation. One of where he has brought us who were far from God to God if we come to faith in Christ. And he tells us that that is what can bring us as individuals in this world in which we live who are far from one another together. As we no longer see people like Peter did of the Gentiles, unclean, unholy. God says, no, they're all, they're all valuable to me. First Samuel sixteen seven, God says he sees the heart, not the externals. And as believers in Christ, that is the message that we carry. First, the message of reconciliation to God, and also the message of reconciliation in the world in which we live. The only thing that can keep us from God is our failure to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In Romans 10.9, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you've never taken that step of faith, where you've said to God, God, I'm trusting in what your son did for me, where he became my sacrifice and paid the penalty for my sins, I invite you to do that today. If you're here today and you think, I'm going to trust in myself, my good works to get to God, friends, you're lost. I invite you to read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and following, where it speaks of the great white throne judgment. Remember, as Peter preached to Cornelius and those who were gathered, he said that God is both the living, he's the judge of the living and the dead. And in Revelation 20, verse 11 and following, it tells us what will happen to the dead, where one day they will face Christ as judge. And it says they will come before the great white throne where he will be the judge. And it tells us that on that day, God will open a book singular. And as you, that's the book of life. The Bible says when we come to faith in Christ, our name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life. And he says, everybody who's there at the great white throne judgment, their name's not in the book of life because they didn't receive him. So then it says he will open the books plural. What God says is, let's look at your resume. Let's look and see. You might be a, a man or a woman like Cornelius, a good God-fearing 
upstanding person, but as you, God says, you know, lots of great things here. He's also going to say, but I see you sinned. We've all sinned. And what he's going to say is because you're a sinner, you owe a penalty, a penalty called death. And because you rejected the payment that my son made on your behalf, you get to make the payment yourself. And the Bible says everyone there will be sent to the lake of fire, what we call hell. Because God says, if you wanted to pay it on your own, you get to pay it for eternity. And you will never close the account. Your sins are removed only one way through the shed blood of his son, Jesus. So if you're here today and you've been trusting in yourself, I invite you today to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus as your Savior. I'm going to close with a prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is acknowledge in your head and your heart that, God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. And to acknowledge that because you're a sinner, you owe a penalty, a penalty of death. And to say, God, I recognize that there is only one way to pay that penalty. And that is through your son, my Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to turn from your sins and to Jesus to be your Savior today, I invite you just to bow your heads where you are and to pray this prayer with me. There's nothing magic about this prayer. It's just your way of telling God that you're accepting his son. If you'd like to do that, then pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. And because of that, I know I deserve the penalty of death. I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place, to wash away my sins through his blood. I believe that after Jesus died and was buried, he rose again from the dead, showing that who, he was who he said he was, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, including mine. Today, God, I'm turning from my sins and to you, Jesus, to be my Savior. I thank you for the gift of eternal life that you've been given. I thank you for making me a part of your family. I pray this in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front. We'll have prayer leaders at the front. We would love to talk to you to make sure you understand the step of faith you just took to help you begin to grow in your walk with God. For the rest of us, God calls on us to walk out of the doors today and share the good news of the gospel. The Bible says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He rose just as he said. Will you stand now and sing this closing song of worship with us?